Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study Podcast, which is all about doing a verse-by-verse exegesis of the Gospel reading from today's Mass. And we're currently moving through the Gospel of Luke, so today we're looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. Jesus went out into the hills to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. When day came, he summoned his disciples and picked out twelve of them. He called them apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He then came down with them and stopped at a piece of level ground, where there was a large gathering of his disciples, with a great crowd of people from all parts of Judea and from Jerusalem and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. People tormented by unclean spirits were also cured, and everyone in the crowd was trying to touch him because power came out of him that cured them all. So that's our reading for today. It's basically a a recount of Jesus picking his 12 apostles. What's the context here? So Jesus has just begun his ministry in Galilee, and he's just had disputes with the Pharisees about healing on the Sabbath. So all that has just happened in Luke chapter 6. And verse 12, most Bibles here start with saying, in these days. So it's at the same time that Jesus is moving around Galilee. Jesus went out into the hills to pray. So because Jesus is still in the Galilee area, he's probably gone to the hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And we know that Jesus does go to this area when he wants a bit of privacy or if he wants to pray. Now, some scholars think the fact that he goes up the mountain, this might call to mind Moses going up the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. And that's, in fact, where God forged the original 12 tribes of Israel. The fact that Jesus now goes up the mountain to pray to God before making the 12 apostles, maybe there's a similarity there. So he goes up there and he spends the whole night in prayer to God. So he's there the entire night. And in all likelihood then, Jesus' choice of the 12 apostles, it's as a result of his night-long prayer. So if perhaps if he hadn't prayed all night, he might not have been able to make the right decision about the apostles. That's perhaps an element of this. So interestingly, just as Moses goes up the mountain to speak to God and then he returns to the people, Jesus basically does the same thing here. He goes up the mountain to speak to God and then he comes back down. Verse 13, when day came, he summoned his disciples and picked out 12 of them. So notice this, he already has disciples by this point. It looks like what happens here is he summons certain disciples, maybe like an invite-only thing, like an inner circle, and then he picks 12 from that. That seems to be what's going on. So he's summoning his disciples, and then he picks the 12 from that. And he's going to choose 12 people deliberately. So it specifically says he picked out 12 of them. Why does he choose 12, not 10 or 13? Most likely, it's supposed to represent the original 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. Because, you know, there's Jacob's 12 sons, they go on to become the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So this might signal that Jesus is making a new Israel with 12 leaders. It also could represent the fact that Moses himself had 12 tribal leaders. That's in Numbers chapter 1. So by doing this, Jesus is signaling that he's establishing new leaders 
for a new Israel and he's bringing about the restoration of Israel, which is a big, uh, a big theme in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Jesus later specifically says the apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's in chapter 2, verse 30 of Luke. So Jesus is clearly picking 12 apostles as some sort of continuation of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, the number 12 is so significant that when one of the apostles dies, Judas, the early church felt that they had to replace him. They had to keep the number at 12. So there's this constant theme of 12 being a significant number for the leadership of God's people. So Jesus has this inner group of disciples already, and that would have been common for rabbis at the time to have an inner group of disciples. What's unique here, though, is that Jesus deliberately chooses from his inner circle only men. Theoretically, he might have been able to choose women, but he seems to deliberately choose men. Other spiritual leaders at the time of Jesus, some of them were comfortable having women. We know that many of the Roman kind of gurus, they did have women. Um, at At that same time period, it was quite common to have priestesses as part of the inner circle of a religion. Now, it does appear that Jewish rabbis at the time wouldn't have had women as their sort of main disciples, although that's not entirely clear. Certainly what is clear, though, is that Jesus being the son of God, could have chosen women if he wanted to, but he appears to deliberately choose men. And for that reason, the Catholic Church sees this as a significant indicator that Jesus wants the priesthood to be male. This is one of the foundational texts for why the priesthood should remain male. And it says here that Jesus calls these men apostles. And that comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means one sent out with the authority of the sender. Interesting, isn't it? Now, Jesus himself apparently calls them apostles. This is not a later title that Christian history has called them. Luke here says that Jesus himself calls them apostles. So these are emissaries sent from Jesus with his royal and priestly authority. The other gospels tell us that Jesus gives them authority to do specific things at this point. So Matthew and Mark's versions say that he Uh, gives them authority to cast out demons and to do healings, etc. But Luke just gives us a shorter version. Luke is now going to list the names of the 12 apostles, though. These are probably people who are all already disciples, who have been following him around full-time already. We certainly know that Peter and James and John and Andrew already had been called by Jesus, so probably all of them had. So here we have the list of the 12 apostles. Verse 14, we start with Simon, who he called Peter. So Simon is always mentioned first in the list of the apostles. That is to highlight that he is the leader of the church. And certainly by the time the apostles were being written, he was known as the leader of the church. Now, Jesus has actually already called Simon Peter when he first met him, which is in John chapter 1, actually. Uh, Jesus gives him the name Peter. And Luke, by now, has already told us about the call of Peter. That's in Luke chapter 5. We then have his brother Andrew, he's the next in the list, so that's the brother of Simon. He also meets Jesus quite early on in John chapter 1. Then we have James and John, so these are the sons of Zebedee, and Jesus met them in Luke chapter 5 verse 10. Next is Philip, so Philip is from Bethsaida. He also met Jesus early on in John chapter 1, and he features fairly prominently in the Gospel of John. We then have Bartholomew, he's sometimes called Nathaniel. And he also met Jesus quite early on in John chapter 1. So the list of the first few apostles, in fact, the first six apostles, are people who met Jesus quite early on in his ministry. And then we have verse 15, Matthew, sometimes called Levi. 
So this is the tax collector, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And then we have Thomas, and of course he's famous for doubting Jesus after his resurrection, though he has some other interesting things he says in the Gospels too. Next in the list is James, son of Alphaeus. He's sometimes called James the Lesser, so he's to be distinguished from James the Greater. So James, the son of Zebedee, is James the Greater, and this is the other James, the son of Alphaeus. There's been a lot of debate in church history about who exactly this James, son of Alphaeus, is. He's possibly the brother of Matthew, or Levi, the tax collector, because Matthew apparently also has a father called Alphaeus. Then we have Simon called the Zealot. The other Gospels call him a Canaanian, but this Gospel calls him a Zealot. So both terms, Canaanian and Zealot, refer to someone who was zealous for the Jewish law, someone who's on fire for God. And it could mean that he was a political revolutionary, someone who wanted to overturn the Romans out of being zealous for God. It's, if that's the case, if this is sort of a political revolutionary zealot, it's significant that Jesus has him in his 12 apostles. Jesus deliberately includes men of different backgrounds and persuasions. We then have verse 16, this person called Judas, son of James. Now, this is not Judas the traitor. It's a different one. So Judas, son of James, he has no lines in the Gospels. He's not recorded as saying anything. The other Gospels sometimes call him Thaddeus. So Thaddeus and Judas, son of James, are the same person. And then lastly, we have Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Apparently, the word Iscariot means that he's from the village of Kirioth. That's what a lot of scholars think it means. He's always listed last by the gospel writers, indicating that the gospel authors want their readers to consider Judas Iscariot to be the least apostle because of what he later does to Jesus. Pope Benedict says this about the uh, apostles. It says, precisely in this wide range of backgrounds, temperaments, and approaches, the twelve personify the church of all ages and its difficult task of purifying and unifying these men in their zeal for Jesus Christ. So we get to verse 17, which says, he then came down with them. So he's coming down the mountain that he was just on, and he's coming with his apostles, and he stops at a piece of level ground. Now, this is interesting, and this gets a lot of discussion about uh, in, in terms of the synoptic gospels and are there contradictions and things like that, because here Luke says he's going to a piece of level ground, and he's just about to give the Sermon on the Mount, or more properly, in Luke's version, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, if you compare Matthew's account here, when Jesus gives the sermon in Matthew's account, it's very clear that it takes place on a mountain, whereas here Luke says he went down to a piece of level ground. So there's not necessarily a contradiction here. The best way of thinking about this, assuming that these two are the same sermon, it's probably Jesus speaking kind of on a a plateau within the mountains, a piece of level ground within the mountains, which is quite common. You can probably visualize that. So they go there and there was a large gathering of his disciples with a great crowd of people from all parts of Judea and from Jerusalem. So in this crowd, it's his own disciples, as well as huge crowds of people from all over Israel. So uh, from Judea as well, not just from Galilee. This is still early in his ministry, but Jesus is already quite famous. He's already quite well known as a teacher and a healer. And Luke even says that it's from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. So there's people there from Tyre and Sidon. These are regions in Phoenicia, in the north of Israel. They're not actually part of Israel at all. So the people of Tyre and Sidon are actually Gentiles. 
But even they want to come and see Jesus. That's how far his fame has spread. Now, interestingly, Tyre and Sidon, historically, they're enemies of Israel. If you look at 1 Maccabees 5 and Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 26 to 28, Tyre and Sidon are enemies of Israel. So maybe Luke mentions them here to kind of foreshadow what he's going to discuss later, which is the mission to the Gentiles. Here, Luke is highlighting that Jesus was popular even amongst the Gentiles, and they came to him voluntarily. And Luke now tells us they came to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. So they're coming for two reasons, to hear his teaching and to be healed. Now, this has already been mentioned by Luke a few times. So in Luke 5, it mentions that people are coming to be healed. And so clearly, Jesus is offering something that no one else in their time was. That's why there's such a big crowd. Verse 18, people tormented by unclean spirits were also cured. Now, Jesus already had the power to cast out unclean spirits. In chapter 4, verses 40 to 41, it's already discussed this. So this is not the first time he's done it. Based on that, it would seem that demon possession was somewhat common in that culture, at least more common than it is in today's culture, it would seem. And we've talked about uh, possession and casting out demons several times in the podcast. But for now, just notice that Luke, he's the the narrator here, he's a doctor and a Gentile. These are often two big objections that skeptics raise against the gospel accounts in terms of demon possession. They'll either say, well, what they thought was demon possession was uh, some medical problem, or they might even say it was just Jewish people uh, biased by their own religion. Well, Luke is a doctor and a Gentile. He's not a Jew. But still, he doesn't think this is a psychological or a biological problem. He thinks these people are genuinely troubled by unclean spirits. Verse 19, and everyone in the crowd was trying to touch him because power came out of him that cured them all. So everyone is trying to jostle to touch Jesus. It's probably quite uncomfortable. They're all pressing around him. And they recognize that all they need to do is touch him and then power comes out of him. Apparently, all they need to do is touch him. And that brings immediate cures. And of course, that's what happens later with the woman with the issue of blood. She just touches the hem of his garment and she's cured. So that's the scene here. There's huge, huge crowds. And Jesus is now going to go on and give this sermon on the plane, which we'll hear in the coming days. Let's now turn to the catechism to see what we can learn from this passage. So we have here two key references. So paragraph 1577, this is in the section about holy orders and who is allowed to receive holy orders. It says, only a baptized man validly receives sacred ordination. The Lord Jesus chose men to form the college of the 12 apostles, and the apostles did the same when they chose collaborators to succeed them in their ministry. The college of bishops with whom the priests are united in the priesthood makes the college of the 12 an ever-present and ever-active reality until Christ's return. The church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. For this reason, the ordination of women is not possible. So that last line, it's straight out of the catechism. The ordination of women is not possible. And it sees this teaching is found by what Jesus does here in uh, picking the 12 apostles to be all men. Uh, It's a controversial teaching. Some people want to change that, but the catechism makes it clear that ordination of women, it's just not possible. Jesus has not left that option open. Paragraph 2600, this is in the section about Jesus' prayer. It makes an interesting point here. The gospel according to St. Luke emphasizes the action of the Holy Spirit and the meaning of prayer in Christ's ministry. Jesus prays before the decisive moments of his mission. 
before his father's witness to him during his baptism and transfiguration, and before his own fulfillment of the father's plan of love by his passion. He also prays before the decisive moments involving the mission of his apostles, at his election and call of the twelve, before Peter's confession of him as the Christ of God, and again that the faith of the chief of the apostles may not fail when tempted. Jesus' prayer before the events of salvation that the Father has asked him to fulfill is a humble and trusting commitment of his human will to the loving will of the Father. So here the Catechism points out that the Gospel of Luke in particular emphasises that Jesus is constantly praying before the significant moments in his ministry. And perhaps without that prayer, the significant moments would not have been possible. Paragraph 695 is about the Holy Spirit. It says, The Spirit-filled Christ and the power of the Spirit went out from him in his acts of healing and of saving. So there you'll hear the quote about power went out from him, which we see here in Luke's Gospel. Paragraph 1116, this picking up a similar phrase from Luke's account, but now applying it to the sacraments. Sacraments are powers that come forth from the body of Christ, which is ever-living and life-giving. They are actions of the Holy Spirit at work in his body, the church. They are the masterworks of God in the new and everlasting covenant. So sacraments are powers that come forth from Jesus, just as the people here literally experienced Jesus when they touched him. Sacraments are essentially an extension of that. They're powers coming forth from Jesus, being delivered to us in the visible form of the sacraments. Paragraph 1504 is about Christ the physician. Often Jesus asks the sick to believe. He makes use of signs to heal, spittle and the laying on of hands, mud and washing. The sick try to touch him, for power came forth from him and healed them all. And so in the sacraments, Christ continues to touch us in order to heal us. So we'll leave it there for today. I hope you've learned something new. Please continue to tell other people about this podcast so it can continue to grow. And hopefully you'll be with us again tomorrow.